Our reading from the Old Testament comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hands on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the Lord or of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. And the gospel lesson this morning, um, the narrative lectionary text for the day is Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As Tom pointed out in the children's sermon, each of the four Gospels begins in a different way. John's is the most overtly theological with echoes of the creation story from Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Luke is concerned to place the event of Jesus' birth in the context of human history. He writes his history with a theological intent to be sure, but he's interested in showing that God acts in the midst of human events. A decree went out from the Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Mark has no nativity story at all, but begins immediately, which is one of Mark's favorite words, begins immediately with the preaching of John the Baptist. And Matthew, well, Matthew begins with what seems like a real yawner, a whole list of names, many of them obscure and difficult to pronounce. Well, whatever else you may think of Matthew's beginning, I think it's safe to assume that he did this on purpose. He wasn't just looking for filler. He thought that this list of Jesus' ancestors was somehow important. These are Jesus' people, he's saying. This is where he comes from. You know, as I grow older, I find I'm becoming more and more interested in my ancestors, learning about their stories. And I now have so many questions I wish I had thought to ask of my parents and my grandparents about their lives and the lives of their parents and their grandparents, not just to learn about what life was like for them and what they experienced, but also in a sense to learn about who I am because our pasts and our family's past shape us. And many years ago, my wife collected wedding pictures of our parents, our grandparents, and great-grandparents, yea, even unto the third and fourth generation. And uh, we had them hung on the wall of our entryway as a kind of family tree. And our middle daughter, who even at an early age had a gift for irreverence, would sometimes walk past those pictures, glance over her shoulder and say, hello, dead people. <laughs> but they weren't all dead. And in a way, none of them were. Because even those who had long ago ceased to walk this earth were somehow still with us. Their genes and many of their physical traits lived on in us. But not only genetic traits, but also habits, customs, traditions. Why do I say a prayer before every meal? Because 
growing up, that's what my father did. I still sometimes echo those words that I heard from him. Why do I like to garden and get my hands in the soil? Could it be something to do with the fact that I come from a long line of farmers? And I can think of a number of other traits that are less flattering um, that I share with those who have gone before me. We are products of our past. Our families shape us. And whether we're trying to emulate their good qualities or flee from their tragic past, determined not to repeat those mistakes, either way, we are in some way or another the result of those who've gone before us. Which is why people are interested in genealogies, I think. We research them to discover something about who we are, how we got to be who we are, and maybe even for some clues as to where we are going. You know, most of the time when we tell stories of our ancestors, we tell the stories of heroes and heroines, like my great-great-grandmother who emigrated to the Netherlands, um, who lost her husband on the voyage, who came here with, with seven children, um, but vowed to continue and uh, her motto in tough times is always, the Lord will provide. Our family tells that story as a way of saying, we come from good stock. We come from people of faith and perseverance and courage. As Pauline Giles wrote in her family memoir, if you come from people who were neither wealthy or lucky, you are here because of the cardinal human virtues, courage, persistence, fortitude, hope. You are here because they took it on the chin. And that's how genealogies functioned in the Bible too. The long list of begats in the Bible here in Matthew and elsewhere are not just uh, matters of record keeping because often the records aren't all that historically accurate, but they're ways of saying, see, this person is a legitimate heir. This person comes from a long line of royalty. He's part of a family of important people, people of courage and faith. And this is part of Matthew's purpose in including the long list of Jesus' ancestors. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David. He's the fulfillment of the promises made to these heroes of Israel. But Matthew adds some interesting twists in the history. For one thing, five women are included in the genealogy. That in itself is unusual because heritage is almost always traced in a patriarchal society placed through the male line. Luke also has a genealogy of Jesus and it's different and he lists 76 men but not a single woman. In Middle Eastern genealogies of the time, if they did include the names of women, it was only if they could somehow ensure the purity of the line or enhance its dignity. But that's certainly not the case here with Matthew. So who are the women that Matthew names? First, there is Tamar. Tamar's husband had died, leaving no offspring. And according to Jewish law and custom, 
her deceased husband's brother was obligated, obligated to become her husband and produce offspring to ensure the continuation of the family name. But this brother-in-law refused to do this, refused to marry Tamar. So she took matters into her own hands, disguises herself as a prostitute, seduces her own father-in-law, Judah, and produces a child by him in order to ensure the line of descendants, the line which led to Jesus the Messiah. She's a bold woman, determined to acquire her rights, even if she must do them by a rather unorthodox means. The second woman that Matthew names is Rahab, another enterprising woman. Rahab did not have to disguise herself as a prostitute. She was a prostitute. She was also a non-Israelite from the city of Jericho. She entertained and harbored the spies who were sent into the city by Joshua, even doing so at, even at the risk of her own life. And when Jericho was conquered and the walls fell down, she was spared and thus secured herself a place among the people of Israel and is another ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. And then Ruth. Ruth also is not an Israelite, but another foreigner, a Moabite. In the book of De Deuteronomy, it says, no Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted. But there she is, Ruth the Moabite, ancestor of Jesus. She is a poor widow who needs a husband. An unmarried woman in this highly patriarchal society had virtually no rights. Her mother-in-law gives her some advice. There's this man named Boaz, she says, fine fellow. He'll be working hard all day and then he'll have a good meal, maybe a glass of wine, and he'll lie down content and go to sleep. You keep an eye on Boaz, Naomi says to Ruth. When he falls asleep, you go, down, you go and lie down next to him. Ruth does as she is told. Boaz wakes up about midnight, discovers this woman lying at his feet, and says, well, hello. <laughs> and you can guess the rest. Um, basically, basically, Ruth says to Boaz, you ought to marry me. He agrees. They're married. And Obed is born, who becomes the grandfather of King David, ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. The next woman Matthew includes in his genealogy, he's apparently too embarrassed even to name. He refers to her only as the wife of Uriah. Her name, of course, was Bathsheba, and she was the wife of Uriah until King David took a fancy to her. Saw her bathing one afternoon and said, I want this woman. And kings, being kings, usually get what they want. Bathsheba becomes pregnant with David's child, but there's this problem that she is still married to 
Uriah. And David takes care of that by sending Uriah to the front lines of the battle where he is killed. The child fathered by David dies, but later Bathsheba conceives again and another child is born, Solomon, another ancestor of Jesus. This is the story of how Jesus came to be, says Matthew. There is Tamar, a woman who would otherwise have been cast off and neglected, who resorts to seduction in order to secure her rights. There is Rahab, the reformed prostitute, who casts her lots with the God of Israel, even at the risk of her own life. There is Ruth, the foreigner, Bathsheba, the victimized adulteress, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, also pregnant by unorthodox means. The women in Matthew's genealogy are women at the margins. They're morally or racially different, outsiders in one way or another, and women who use their wits to force the men of Israel to claim them as members of God's promises. This is where Jesus comes from, says Matthew. Jesus really was tied to the squalid realities of human life and sex and politics and family jealousies. And many of the men listed in Matthew's genealogy were no better and often a lot worse. There's Jacob who cheated on his brother Esau. Judah and his brothers who sold their younger brother Joseph into slavery and others in Matthew's list who are far worse. There are assassins, mass murderers, idolaters, kings who ordered the slaying of infants. You know, usually when we tell our family stories, we keep the skeletons in the closet. Matthew brings them out into the open and says, yeah, we all have skeletons. We're all compromised or victimized in one way or another. There's a lot in our past and a lot in our family histories that maybe we wish were not there. But it is there. And it was there for Jesus too. And look what God can do with it. God's plans are not accomplished only through pious, morally upright people, people of stellar character and impeccable reputations. In fact, there is a whole lot that is a lot less than admirable in these people. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Abraham, through whom God promised to bless all the families of the earth. Jesus is a descendant of David. David, to whom God promised that there would be descendants on the throne forever. This Jesus is a blessing for everyone and for all time, says Matthew. But this Jesus is also a descendant of the Abraham who tried to pass off his own wife as his sister and give her as wife to Abimelech in order to save his own skin. This Jesus is the descendant of David, the apple of God's eye, beloved king of Israel, but also David, the adulterer and the murderer. 
Jesus did not belong to a perfect family. He belonged to a family of cheats, murderers, cowards, adulterers, and liars, which is to say he belonged to us. And he came to help us and to give us hope. He is God with us, with us in everything human, weaving out of past failures and faults and tragedies something good and wonderful and holy. And I think Matthew, especially by including these women in the story of where Jesus came from, is also telling us that people who are victimized, neglected, cast off, pushed to the edges of society and forgotten, these people are not forgotten by God. In fact, these are the very people through whom God is working But even that will not get in the way of God's plan for us. Jesus is the one through whom all the families, all families, no matter how checkered their past, no matter how cruelly victimized or morally compromised, no matter how troubled, all families will be blessed. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that the news of your love for us may not remain only a memory or an echo in our ears, but might take deep root in our hearts and might grow and produce fruit to the glory of your name. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.